This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio, 5pm in the City of London. You have been listening uh, over the last hour or so to a couple of things. The first one, uh, the testimony being given by a number of uh, senior bankers over in the United States uh, to the House Financial Services Committee. We've also heard within the last hour from President Biden addressing the UN General Assembly in New York. We'll dive into both of those subjects as we work our way throughout the hour. Um, quick updates on where we sit with financial markets. Clearly, we are now heading towards uh, the Federal Reserve meeting. That's the big next set piece event, Alex, that we're watching. European equities generally well bid. The FTSE 100 up by around six tenths of 1%. The S&P over in the States, in your part of the world, up by around half of 1%. But volume, a little bit light. A little caution, Mm -hmm. maybe going into the Fed. Yeah, we talked about uh, earlier that um, a lot of firms were closing out their shorts headed into the Fed. Typically, you actually have seen a rally in the S&P after Fed days this year, so watch for that. The action, though, really fun in the bond market. Uh, The two-year yield finally hitting that 4% level. I feel like we've been waiting for this. It's the highest since 2007. And the two questions, one, one, is there a shakeout in other assets? Or two, is at the top? Like, is 4% consistent with the Fed that we're going to see today? In which case, can the bond market catch its breath? Absolutely. It's been fast and furious in the bond market over the last few days. Uh, 4% roughly equivalent to a terminal rate for the Fed of around 4.5%. But maybe we do go higher from there. And the key question around all of this, of course, is when are we going to see a cut? We'll try and answer all of these questions uh, as we work our way towards the Fed a little bit later on. There's plenty to catch up on, though. Let's get the headlines from Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. President Biden took center stage at the United Nations to rally international support for Ukraine following Russia's military escalation and Vladimir Putin's threat saying Russia had, quote, shamelessly violated the core tenets of the UN Charter. His response came a day after France's Emmanuel Macron, Germany's Olaf Scholz, decried Vladimir Putin's aggression, both accusing him of imperialism. Prime Minister Truss will be using her first speech to the General Assembly to say allies should act as an economic NATO in reference to the post-World War II military alliance. She says it's a mechanism needed to tackle the threat of authoritarian regimes such as Russia, who, quote, seek to weaponize the global economy. The British government has unveiled a multi-billion pound bailout to help companies with their energy bills this winter amid soaring prices that threaten to put many out of business. Under the estimated 40 billion pound plan, the government will cap the wholesale energy prices that feed into gas and power contracts for businesses for six months. Thereafter, a review will determine whether ongoing support is needed for specific sectors. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. As Charlie says, we have had that announcement today for business on the energy front. Most of the details consistent with what Bloomberg has been reporting over the last uh, few days. The cap for business set at 21.1 pence a kilowatt hour, 7.5 pence for gas. That's around a 50% discount to the current wholesale prices uh, this winter. But it's a volatile market, very hard to exactly gauge exactly how much all of this is going to cost. Rachel Morrison leads our coverage in this space. She's been keeping us up to date over the last few sessions. We've worked our way towards this announcement today. Rachel, any surprises? 
Well, what um, businesses are really looking out for at this point is all of the detail about when they will get the money from the government. So, obviously, help on this kind of scale is very much welcomed, but... The detail about when the payments will land with businesses we are hearing could be the difference for some between kind of staying open and not because this discount will be backdated from April the 1st. But still, you know, on at the beginning of October, the, the new month bill will leave business accounts and they want to know how quickly the government is going to give them this money because that's really crucial. Yeah, really crucial um, indeed. I actually have a a friend who is a small business who just got her pandemic loan, like just got it. I'm just putting it out there. Um, So to that point, um, does it also give businesses enough room to get sufficient economic growth to like, can they actually invest? Can they spend in stuff? Will people be able to go buy things like does this actually help that part of the business world? It will help in terms of some of the the extra costs that would be passed on to consumers. So that kind of inflationary element is partially what the government is seeking to fix with both this measure and the household, the previous um, package for households. So to try to stop prices rising further as businesses have to add on the extra energy cost to some of the products. So there is hope that that will help with inflation. And because businesses aren't helped by the price cap, um, that that households are the really yep. astronomical increases we have seen on bills for them, you know, thousands of pounds, and and that really is difficult for businesses to pay month to month. Rachel, we talk about businesses. How do we define a business here? Who is covered? It's really broad. It's and everyone. So even the big businesses. So we sort of used the example in our story. Some of the biggest. Companies like Shell, like Rolls-Royce, the energy that they use for their offices, they will, they will get help with that. You know, industry and manufacturing is different, but for their, their operations, um, even if they don't need it, um, some of the companies like Shell, they will also be able to get some relief on, on their bills. Is that it? I mean, does Shell really need the help? Like, does BP really need the help? Like, this kind of goes to the whole consumer part, too, that you're having companies, wealthy, profitable companies versus small businesses all getting the same help. Yes, it is difficult, I suppose, in the government's defense to kind of separate out at speed who should receive help. Perhaps there will be some um, emphasis and some pressure put on companies, like with the furlough payments, to not take the government up on this um, or to pay back um, help that they received. So we could see things like that. You know, we know that um, there's been some pressure on the BP CEO to pay back his own personal um, £400 um, discount that the government gives to everybody. So perhaps we'll see that pressure coming on businesses that can afford it to not take this. What comes next? This lasts for six months, but what comes after that? Is it going to be a downgraded package? How long could that downgraded package last? How, how, how much forward thinking has been built into what we've seen announced today? The business package is much more complicated because each business has its own bespoke energy contract. So it's difficult for government to try to get 
estimates and realistic estimates of how much this is going to cost them. So I think that is partially what's behind the shortened time frame for this, so six months versus two years for households, because they want to see how much it's costing them and how sustainable it is to really bail out business in this way for a long period. And as economic things change as factors change there may be something that mean businesses don't need this it's hard to see that at this point and already we're hearing some of the reactions to this is that businesses want the next um, period to start to be lined up so that they have visibility about costs because you know a huge spike um, after this point could also be quite damaging yep rachel thanks a lot we really appreciate it rachel morrison uh joining us on the uk's business energy plan um also guy um during the last couple hours uh liz truss was speaking in new york at a business roundtable saying that they're going to simplify the tax codes they're going to announce some supply side reforms um and other simplification measures um and that they want more people back in the office and they won't be raising corporation taxes you know business friendly conversation the, the supply side story is is massive here in the UK. Mm-hmm. How much of that we get in the mini budget, which is going to be taking place on Friday with the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, we will wait and see. But this is an economy badly in need, badly in need of supply side reform. We'll hear what the Chancellor has to say Friday, Bank of England tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Wall should see these outrageous acts for what they are. Putin claims he had to act because Russia was threatened. But no one threatened Russia. And no one other than Russia sought conflict. That was President Biden speaking at the U.N. General Assembly just moments ago, uh, speaking very strong words about Russia and Putin's latest move uh, to partially mobilize uh, its citizens. He also went on to talk about a one-China policy. He said he does not want a Cold War uh, or a conflict uh, with China. But it's been a very tumultuous just 12 hours on the geopolitical front. Uh, Anne-Marie Hordern is, has been outside the U.N. talking to world officials uh, all day long. Um, Anne-Marie, no doubt the rhetoric around what Putin said overnight in terms of partial mobilization and the threat of nuclear war, front and center, everyone's going to be against it. What's the chatter behind the curtain? Well, what really this has done is just made it almost easier to unite the allies. A lot of the questions coming into this UN, especially as you DLC countries dealing with an energy crisis and a food crisis, it's the blowback they're all feeling from the policies they enacted to penalize Russia following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And what Putin has done overnight is just give these leaders fresh impetus to go out, to talk to other leaders, and to make sure they can maintain that unity. And that's really what the president did at the start of his speech. It was a direct condemnation for Putin, and he really was seeking those that have yet to join uh, this alliance against Russia to do so and not stand idly by. How does the president, did the president in any shape or form today, attempt to deter Russia from taking the next step? We've seen reservists being called up. There is this. Um, there are going to be these series of elections, which effectively are going to designate in the Russian, uh, in the Russian eyes, some of these parts of Ukraine as being Russia. And then there was the nuclear threat on top of that. That raises the ante. It makes the risk of escalating this conflict into a very dangerous place more significant. How does the president deter that from happening other than saying we're all going to stand together? 
It's a great question, Guy. Um, I think they will continue by making sure they're, and this is what Jens Stoltenberg said to me yesterday, uh, the NATO Secretary General, that they will continue to send Ukraine weapons and ammunition until the war is over. And this does seem to look like it's going to be a very prolonged war because when you have Putin uh, annexing outright, basically, these uh, four regions, which would then lead to Crimea, uh, is talking about the threat of uh, nuclear war and saying that it is not a bluff, then what you have at this moment is no chance of peace negotiation. Mm -hmm. Which, which in in some ways, is very different than the conversation we were having just like last Friday uh, about this, maybe backdoor channels, etc. And Marie, I was reading a note from Halima Croft over at RBC, and she was saying that, look, if Putin's okay to say you know, this is not a bluff now, he is going to have no problem cutting off oil and gas now uh, to the rest of Europe. Oh, he certainly won't. He pretty much already is. And it's not even so much him cutting it off. At the end of the year, all the oil that is going from Russia to Europe is going to be sanctioned. Um, It's it's gas that they have a little bit more leeway in, but he's obviously uh, playing politics with, with, with gas. It's going to be an incredibly, incredibly challenging winter. I I can't get over the fact that this U.N. General Assembly, uh, not only, of course, is it obviously going to be so much focused about the war happening right now on the ground in Ukraine, but it's almost become an oil and gas conference because these countries are having bilateral meetings on the side. They are doing whatever they can to try to shore up supplies. Yep. Uh, And that's... I, we've just In the last block, we were just talking about the UK's response to that. Uh, obviously, we're seeing many other countries, as you say, trying to negotiate to navigate these incredibly treacherous waters. Uh, and and it's going to be a big problem for the global economy. Anne-Marie, thank you for the continuing coverage. Stellar work being done by Anne-Marie uh, at the UN General Assembly. Um, up next, we're going to talk about what this all means for the Chancellor of the Exchequer here in the UK and the Governor of the Bank of England. We'll talk about that next This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, over the next few days, to be honest, this whole week, the UK guilt market is having a little bit of a bumpy time. Over the last few days, we've seen a significant repricing. Bond yields have, particularly at the front end, have shot higher. Um, We are anticipating a Bank of England rate decision tomorrow. Will that be 50 or 75? And then we've got this mini budget coming up as well on Friday. We've seen the energy announcement already uh, that we've been talking to to Rachel about uh, coming into the mix. And and we're starting to get an understanding of the details of that as well. Um, We are expecting, as a result, massive, massive amounts of supply to come in to the guilt market. Um, And this is going to come from two sides, one of which is going to come from the government, uh, which is going to have to significantly increase borrowing. Uh, The trust government, and we heard the Prime Minister speaking today in New York talking about tax cuts. Um, Basically, what we're going to see is total issuance going to around £192 billion, the range kind of 177 to 212. The DMO is going to have a real challenge getting that out into the market. There's probably domestic demand, but is there international demand? It is a huge problem at the same time as the as the Bank of England potentially is going to be selling gilts back into the market 
as a result of QT. I'm... Yep, and at the same time, uh, tomorrow we're probably going to get a BOE hike of about 75 basis points after their 50, and the expectation is to, for hikes to continue. Um, I have to wonder, too, at what point does that reckoning come? We know it's happening. We've already seen sort of the guilt market maybe move in anticipation of it. But when are we really going to see that moment where it's like, oh, here's QT uh, and here's the massive issuance that we're seeing basically to fund the government at this point? I think it's going to play out over the next year. I think it's going to play out quite quickly. I think the the guilt market is is really going to struggle here. Uh, It's got an awful lot to digest. Now, there are natural buyers with UK pension funds, etc. in this market. But a lot of pension funds are also getting very cautious at the moment. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are not buying duration. They're they're, They're basically saying, We'll take cash right now because they just can't um, they can't quantify the potential duration risk that they could be facing. Now, they have to, from a regulatory point of view, carry a lot of guilt. But nevertheless, this is a country that runs a current account deficit. Mm-hmm. It needs other people to come in and ultimately fund it. Uh, and in an environment where you've got a government that in some people's minds is behaving relatively recklessly in terms mm-hmm. of its spending plans, is that money going to be there? Right. And I think that and we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks is that the um, the difference in monetary and fiscal policy that seems to be highlighted in the UK. And I don't necessarily think that we're not going to see it elsewhere. We are. But I feel like the UK is ahead of this um, to a certain extent that you have monetary tightening, but then fiscal loosening at the same time. Europe is in the same kind of situation, right? The ECB hiking rates, yep. but then at the same time, you have a bazillion dollars being spent uh, on high gas bills as well as uh, the energy transition. Uh, here in the US, same thing. Inflation Reduction Act. I understand you're going to argue that it's going to reduce inflation, but you have the Fed hiking. At the same time, there is more money that's going to be released from the government uh, into the economy. Um, this is different than what we saw back in 08, and I don't know if we know the full effects of what that's going to be. Well, it's, it's different to what we saw in the pandemic. In the pandemic, oh, yeah, they're we're working together for sure. What, yeah, in the pandemic, um, we probably saw more government spending than what we're about to see, but it, it's not too dissimilar. Mm-hmm. But the key difference then was that the, the central bank, the central banks were sucking up all of that supply. Um, and as a result of which, the market was not overwhelmed. This time around, it's the exact opposite. And to your point, I don't think we fully yet understand the implications of that. How will the market, is the market capable of digesting this? Yeah, and I think, you know, and you brought this point up yesterday. Um, You throw the BOJ into the mix, and then things get even more confusing. Um, So Mark Cudmore, who writes for M Live, and he also anchors in the mornings uh, over in in the UK, um, he wrote a piece that said, look, the BOJ, once you have inflation actually moving up higher, and it's the highest it's been in years, the BOJ is going to have to adapt its yield curve control program at some point. And for the BOJ to really move the needle, they're going to have to do a big surprise, which means like come in and capping it and doing something dramatic. And if that happens, you're going to see a huge amount of money leaving other assets and going back into Japan. And that's going to sort of exacerbate the liquidity crunch that we're already seeing because of global central bank tightening. Yeah, you see that money leave. That I, It's just simple mathematics. Um, mm-hmm. if, if, if the price goes down, the yield goes up. Um, and that will affect not only the United States. Now, the U.S. is going to be a big part of this, but Europe, Japanese investors have been big investors into Europe as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that will be a that will be that could be the moment. Is is basically the Cudmore argument. Yeah. Uh, and we're not even factoring. I I've just run through the numbers. We're not even factoring in that kind of sudden sharp tightening of financial conditions produced by by much higher yields relatively quickly into the mix. Um, now, at some point, these yields are going to get attractive enough that mm-hmm. the Tina 
there is no alternative to equities kind of plays plays out. And some of these bond yields are going to become so attractive that I think they probably will suck in demand. But we're not potentially there yet. And we don't know where we're going. So the risk is that, that investors aren't going to be there for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that's when you also have the, the the relative value play. You have like Italian bonds at four. And we have an election this week, right? You have U.S. yields now multi-year high at three point yep. almost 6%. percent we got two-year at four. Yeah, two year at four, which we've definitely been waiting for. And Maria Vassalou, who uh, is a co head of Go- uh, Goldman Sachs multi asset strategy at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, um, said that she likes the long end, not yet, but that eventually yields will become high enough. She doesn't know when or what that yield will be, but definitely that we're not there yet. Yeah, I, we, you haven't since the financial crisis really been able to get a decent yield. I, you've been able to get a relatively decent yield on your bond portfolio, but. You might be able to get a kind of historically okay yield. 4% is really good. Like I know. I'm waiting for my Marcus account now to send me the email to be like, we're going to bump up your interest rate. Like 4% is 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 kind of a serious investment. And if you look at what's happening in credit, uh-huh. I, potentially some of those yields, I, you're talking about 10% mm-hmm. on some fairly decent credits. And it's going to be really interesting to see at what point the market goes. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, but there also are cracks. I mean, obviously, I've been um, sure. trying to follow the Citrix uh, offload. Um, well, Elliot's just bought a ton of that. Yeah, um, but I've been really interested to see like who buys it and what the concessions are. Um, this is a huge amount of uh, a debt that the banks are trying to offload, and they've had a really hard time of it. And I'm, I'm in, I wonder, you know, how much of that is just Citrix itself, and how much of that is the market, and how the two are interacting. Anyway, side note. Fed, Fed. next. Fed. Fed. Yeah. Yep. Mike McKee's going to join us next. He'll update us on what we should expect from the federal meeting. Get a lot of details around that Fed meeting as well. He'll give us an idea of what we should be looking for. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. It's Fed Day, if you haven't heard. Just a couple hours away uh, from that meeting. A quick check on the markets. We were mentioning it before, too. Your Treasury yields here in the U.S. crossing 4% for the first time since 2007. Stocks pretty much going nowhere, posting some mild gains here uh, for the S&P. That's after they rebounded from a two-month low. Uh, the dollar climbing, oil companies and defense companies were also climbing, and that's really a geopolitical story of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin um, really trying to step up his rhetoric and war uh, against Ukraine and renewing those warnings uh, of a nuclear threat. All eyes, though, still glued to the Fed. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now let's get some other headlines. Here is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex. Still, here's what's going on. President Biden took center stage at the United Nations today to rally international support for Ukraine following Russia's military escalation and Vladimir Putin's threats, saying Russia had shamelessly violated the core tenets of the UN Charter. Prime Minister Liz Truss will be using her first speech at the UN General Assembly to say allies should act as an economic NATO. She will say it's a mechanism needed to tackle the threat of authoritarian regimes such as Russia, who, quote, seek to weaponize the global economy. The former American president, Donald Trump, is being sued for allegedly using fraudulent asset valuations at his real estate company, the culmination of a years-long probe by the New York attorney general into dealings by the former president and his family. The attorney general filed suit in New York state court. In addition to Trump, the suit names the Trump Organization and three of the former president's adult children, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump, who are 
all senior executives at the company. Security guards employed at HSBC's headquarters in Canary Wharf will begin a strike action next week over pay, that according to the Unite Union. Meanwhile, United Airlines is facing potential disruption in one of its most lucrative overseas markets as 300 workers at Heathrow begin voting in a strike ballot over pay. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so much. Ah, the strike conversation guy. I feel like this will be never ending. Never. Y- yes. I am living it day to day. We have strikes now all the way across mm-hmm. the UK. We're about to get another rig round of train uh, strikes. I am really looking forward to this. Uh, yeah, when, when I was all up in arms about the rail strike last week, he's like, what's your point? <laughs> I deal with this all the time. But, you know. A fair point. Um, okay, here in the U.S., like I mentioned, Federal Reserve, we're just ticking away here. We are about uh, an hour and a half away from the Fed decision. Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent, is in D.C. He'll be headed to the Fed meet. Um, okay, Mike, uh, are we looking at a hawkish 75? Is that is that the biggest takeaway going into this? Yeah, it's a happy Fed day to you, Alex, and I did get you something. It comes in size three quarter. Uh, three, quarters, three quarters of a percentage point. Of course, in, uh, in Great Britain, they size things differently. It's a 75. So uh, we will be seeing <laughs> the Fed raise interest rates by 75 basis points, three quarters of a percentage point for the third time in a row. Remember in June, Jay Powell said this is going to be really rare. But uh, the numbers have come in disappointing. And so they're still raising rates at a very furious pace. Is the, is the Fed comfortable doing what the market has asked it to do? Uh, the Fed would argue it's not what the market is asking it to do. It's the market reacting to what they think the Fed is going to do. Uh, the Fed gave us all kinds of signals that they would be probably doing 75 basis points this time. And so, uh, you know, the markets took that in and, and repriced. And so the Fed is probably happy about that. M- much of what's happened in the markets has followed uh, Fed hints about what they're going to do. And that has uh, transmitted some monetary policy impact to the economy much more quickly than it used to do. So uh, they're letting the, the markets do this because it, it helps with what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, we also get the updated summary of economic projections. Um, how fast are, the, are we going to see inflation come down per the Fed? And how quickly do they think and how high do you think the rise in unemployment rate will be? Those, those are the key questions, Alex. Uh, the unemployment rate is going to be kind of the most interesting in the sense that uh, they are supposed to write down each one of them, all 19, what they think the optimal monetary policy is going to be and what the economic effects of that policy would be. And so for a Fed that knows that unemployment is probably going to go up because they're raising rates, whatever they say the rate is going to rise to, what they think that unemployment rate is going to be is going to be important because uh, it kind of gives us a sense of their tolerance for what unemployment how much unemployment can rise. As far as inflation, we think that's going to come, their estimates are going to make uh, come down and, and that it is going to fall more slowly. We get the first 2025 estimates today and probably don't get back to uh, close to 2% until 2025. What's the key question, Mike? Well, the key question, I think, is what they do next, which is kind of a question of do they continue this 75 basis point or do they start to dial back? 
And if they want to start to dial back, how do they express that? Because when Powell said in July that the Fed could start uh, raising rates by smaller amounts, the market took that as, well, he's going to pivot. And all of a sudden, uh, the market is pricing in the Fed cutting rates. And that's not at all what they want to do. They, they want to make sure that the market thinks they're still raising rates. Mm-hmm. So how, how they tell us that is going to be important. OK, so I say this every time, but I'll say it again. For those who, who don't know, Michael McKee asks the question at the Fed, and it is typically the most interesting question. And the analysts that put out their notes after the fact usually wind up quoting whatever answer Jay Powell gives Mike, because that's how important the question is. So, Mike, that question that you said is going to be the, the front and center, everyone else is going to ask that. What's going to be your question? Well, i got a couple of other things that I'm interested in finding out. One is um, whether they think there would be any political implications, raising rates a lot at the next meeting, because it's six days before the midterm elections in the United States. And while the Fed will say, we don't succumb to any political pressure, do they worry that they could become a political pinata in the last week, uh, especially from members of um, the political world who are running for election and want to uh, have something to run against? So that would be something interesting. There are questions about whether they need to make some adjustments to the QT process. Uh, Is that going faster than they thought? Uh, So those are kind of things that we'll be looking at. Also, how bad did that big CPI report from August scare them? Do they think they have to do a lot more work because of that? Mike, what are the implications for everybody else? What are the implications for the Bank of England? Uh, You know, the the Bank of England's got a problem uh, that goes beyond the Fed, and that's Brexit and all the uh, supply chain problems that have come along with that. And so you've got the Fed going to be sort of piling on in the sense that uh, the Bank of England can raise rates a lot and try to save the pound. But if they do, they're risking an even worse recession than they're forecasting. So it puts uh, Andrew Bailey in a very difficult position. What does he do? Uh, How far does he go? Does he let the pound go in favor of the economy? Uh, There are some people who think that that may be it. This would be like sort of the time when they left the exchange rate mechanism. Yeah, Mike, um, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Go, go, go. Uh, Have fun. We'll look forward to your question. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. I have to be honest, I don't think I've been this excited for a Fed meeting since 2016 when they raised rates that, that, that first time after the crisis. Does that feel extreme? I am pretty excited. No, it's it's going to be. This is this is a big, big meeting. Yeah. And and the and the implications going forward are massive. We're excited. Okay, two year yields right at four percent. This is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. The work we do at J.P. Morgan Chase matters in good times, but particularly more in tough times. We provide critical financing to nearly every sector including manufacturing, service, energy, real estate, and transportation. Importantly, we finance federal, state, and local governments, schools, bridges, hospitals, and universities, and transit. We have long championed the essential role of banking in a community, its potential for bringing people together, for enabling companies and individuals to reach for their dreams, and for being a source of strength in difficult times. That was, of course, 
Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, the world's biggest bank. Uh, he is one of a number of major bank CEOs that have appeared today in front of the House Financial Services Committee on Capitol Hill in Washington uh, to take questions from the representatives. Um, we've learned a number of things. Let's dig into the details of what has been going on this afternoon and what it means for not only U.S. banking, but global banking. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Nathan Dean joining us now to react. Nathan, what's the takeaway? So I really have three takeaways from the hearing that's still going on. Uh, the first is uh, lots of discussion about capital requirements. Now, from J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon's perspective, his thought is capital requirements are too big and they are now a restriction, and he's calling on policymakers to look into lowering those. I think that's going to fall on deaf ears. There is also this uh, the initiative from the regional banks, PNC, Truist, and U.S. Bank, to try and stave off a proposal that everybody's thinking about that, that's coming out next year that would require them to issue up to $90 billion in long-term debt. The other two issues that are really coming into play right now, overdraft fees. Mm-hmm. All the banks are taking the opportunity to highlight the actions of how they've lowered overdraft fees over the last couple of years. And then lots of talk about diversity mortgage and also M&A. U.S. Bank has a proposed mortgage. Uh, uh, merger with MUFG Union Bank. Uh, There's been some regulatory slowdown on that, so the the bankers are certainly wanting to get that uh, talking point of why can't we actually do mergers in this environment. Um, What's their biggest fear in terms of these bank CEOs? Like, we know that the the people in the House are going to be, you know, campaigning, basically, when they do this. But what are the CEOs scared of? Who are they scared of? Who are they trying to talk to the most? So right now, the, the, the mantra should be do no harm, get into Washington, and then go back to Wall Street or to Pittsburgh and so forth. Um, you know, this is mo- not one of those hearings that's actually going to have a huge impact on the uh, on the equity price, uh, we think, today. But however, this is one of those hearings where you need to start providing that intelligence, that information to the lawmakers, because we have an election in the states just in a month and a few days away, and a lot of this action is going to come next year. So any type of changes that the regulators or that the bankers want, like Jamie Dimon's call for capital, he wants the pressure to be put on the Fed next year, the regional banks pressure on the regulators next year. So there are political points in play, but this is just one part of the process so that the bankers can actually start pushing their points and then try and get the lawmakers to respond in 2023. Post the midterms, how different will these hearings be? So it really depends on who's going to win. Um, you know, if you presume that the Republicans are going to win the House of Representatives, you may not hear a hear- have a hearing. I mean, this is an annual uh-huh. hearing. More likely than not, the, the bankers will come back. But I, we just tell our clients, please note that, you know, the, the gridlock is going to continue to happen in Washington. Gridlock is a new normal. It's been around forever. And as a result, no matter what happens, if the Republicans control the House or the Senate, any proposed piece of legislation that they announce has to have President Biden's signature. If the Democrats, let's just say if Elizabeth Warren tomorrow states that she wants to propose a bill to break up the big banks, you need a Republican filibuster in the Senate, or sorry, Republican uh, votes to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. So no matter what happens post midterms, it has to be bipartisan. That's where Mm -hmm. the battleground is moving to the regulators. And that's why the bankers are making these statements today. Uh, Quickly, what was the craziest thing that Jamie Jamie Dimon has said? Uh, You know, uh, Jamie Dimon, I think he loves these hearings. You know, he's very much engaged with the policymakers. We like to joke it's the Jamie Dimon show because he he, I think he talks more than anything else. Um, You know, his his statements about capital requirements, you know, that J.P. Morgan is getting this uh, these increased capital requirements over the next few years. That's something that the regulators just aren't even thinking about. 
It's going to be interesting to see ultimately what comes out of tomorrow as well. We move to the Senate. Nathan, thank you very much indeed. Nathan Dean on what is happening on Capitol Hill right now. Bank CEOs giving testimony to the House Financial Services Committee. You can follow along uh, on the Bloomberg, of course, with what is happening there. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London. Hey, Guy, here's a fun redhead on the terminal. According to Dow Jones, <laughs> Meta is looking to trim costs by at least 10% in the coming months, and shares briefly turn positive after the report. They're going to reorg to eliminate some of those jobs. The shares have had a really tough time of t- mm-hmm. uh, things recently, haven't they? Yeah, like, they really, really have. Like, really tough time of things. The, the fact that we're now seeing a reaction to cost cutting, I think, is fascinating. This mm-hmm. is is this a cost cutting company now, or is this a growth company? Exactly. And how do you value a company then when you don't know what that is? I think it's probably what the uh, market's trying to figure out. Um, all right, let's figure out some more stuff with Kuta Gupta. Uh, she joins us here in the studio right before her uh, show that comes up in about ten minutes' time. Thank you for joining. Um, what's your reaction to this meta headline? Well, it's interesting because it comes as we get a Walmart headline earlier this morning as well. The idea that over at Walmart, uh, which, by the way, is known as kind of your everyday low prices spot, they have a really tough time passing on cost to consumers. Well, they're saying they're going to kind of pull back on their seasonal workers as well. So there is a theme here in terms of hiring when it comes to the biggest corporations. For context, um, I'll come back to Meta, I promise. But Walmart saying that they're going to hire 40,000 seasonal workers instead of 110,000 fewer than last year. So so that is a pretty big move. And now to see this from from Meta, I keep wanting to say Facebook, but Meta as, as well, um, is, is interesting. It also, I think, sets the tone when you start hearing it from tech companies that have kind of gone out of their way in this talent war and, and trying to put more money. For them to say, okay, well, we're pulling back, that's, um, I, I would say, not a great harbinger for the rest of the market. What's the setup into the Fed? Uh, sell the rumor, buy the news. And that's what we've seen all week, um, which is the opposite of buy the rumor, sell the news. I keep thinking I'm funny mm. uh, there. But um, basically, you are seeing the S&P 500 up six tenths of 1%. No surprise here. This always happens. I think we've had about a 2% gain at every single Fed day going back to January. Um, so, so the idea here simply being that the market is primed for exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to deliver, 75 basis points. But Guy, I would argue all the action that's in the bond market, mm-hmm. there is now a case for a 5% two-year yield, which is wild to me. Well, okay, if we got a 5% two-year yield, I'm wondering what the terminal rate would be for that. 5%? 5 55 I mean, Anna Wong says it's going to be 5%, um, and, and she is a contrarian in that call over at Bloomberg Economics. And basically, uh, her case is, is it comes down to the labor market. You're just not going to see that much um, loosening happening in the labor market. Hmm. The, the equity market's not ready for that. No, it's not. <laughs> or, 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 yeah, yeah, fair enough. Or, 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 I would say, or has it already repriced to a certain extent, or certain areas repriced enough for that, like housing stocks, for example? Maybe, but the broader market, I don't think, is is pricing that. Hmm. Um, I think we've we've kind of got a little bit more comfortable with with four, four and a half. But I think if you're going to get up to around five percent, I there's been a lot of there's been a lot of congestion and indigestion this week as we've accelerated up to 4 on the 2 year if we're going to move up to 5 i do, do some of these doomsday scenarios around stocks start to come true i agree mm-hmm. i a lot of very senior people within the financial community are predicting significant downside from here 
Yeah, and and I think when we're talking about the stock market, this is where things like the earnings story really comes into handy. And you've had equity strategist after equity strategist call for this, saying that it's not going to be about the Federal Reserve in the coming months, which makes the case that if you do perhaps see, hypothetically, 5% on the 10-year yield, we're still far from that, but high 5% on the 10-year yield, the damage done to the equity market won't be the same as perhaps when the uh, 10-year yield hit 3% or hit potentially 4%. The marginal um, kind of cross-asset implications will be less and less as the equity market starts to pivot and react a little bit more to the earnings story. And I think that's where mm-hmm. the labor market story comes into play. And bringing it back full circle, Alex, to the meta headline you brought earlier um, in, in, in the, sh- the segment, I think when you start to get the actual numbers behind this, I mean, look, a 10% pullback, we don't know what the effect on the bottom line is yet. So when mm-hmm. the earnings numbers actually come out and say, okay, well, that 10% pullback actually meant that they couldn't meet capacity by X percent, that's when that's when you'll actually see it priced into the equity market, mm-hmm. and it'll become more of a micro story than a macro story. Um, let's talk about the dollar for a second, because you have to go in like a minute. How <laughs> many more longs can there be in the dollar at this point? Um, Still a few. Still a few, which is which is scary because of how crowded of a trade it is. Um, But 1320 on the Bloomberg dollar index. And the reason you're saying this is because there's really no other place to park your cash in the long term. Um, In the short term, perhaps you could make an argument if uh, Germany and France and Italy are saying, well, actually, we have all these other solutions to the energy crisis. Then temporarily, you could hit, um, see some money flowing into the euro. But in the long term, as long as you have those concerns around the JGB market and the yen, it'll still be that dollar story because, once again, there is no place else to go. So even if it is a crowded trade, the dollar trade isn't going to break anytime soon for that reason. All right, Critty, we'll let you go. Okay. You have to be on air in four minutes and 30 seconds. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Have fun. Uh, we'll be watching. Kriti Gupta uh, joining us from Bloomberg. Um, so, Guy, to answer our question, I don't think we know. And if you're Nouriel Rubini, you could look at another 40%, was it, downside in U.S. equities? It, yeah. I didn't actually read whether it's another 40% or 40% down from the top. So, I think it was okay, probably another 20% the from here, maybe. Yeah. Um, Let's be generous and say it's twenty percent. That's still really going to hurt. That takes um, us down to around three thousand. But there's so much money on the sidelines. Like there's the most cash we've seen since 2011. So like you yeah. have to wonder, what is it going to take for them not to buy a five percent dip? In essence, um, fear mm-hmm. and fear that that we're migrating from a higher yield environment narrative, which is causing considerable concern, obviously, on a DCF basis, to a recession and earnings. And this is this is what, for instance, uh, some of some of the big names are talking about right now. They're Mm -hmm. talking about the fact that that we're going to we're fearing higher yields at the moment, higher rates at the moment. But ultimately, the real kick in the teeth is going to come from earnings. Yeah. Yeah, or some exogenous event that we're not really pricing in, like we were talking about the BOJ earlier, like something that we're not thinking yeah. about day to day. Okay, so I'm I'm thinking a hawkish 75. Where are you at? 100. You're at 100. Is it dovish 100? Not really. I'm just saying 100 because I, I think a hawkish 75 is probably the most. Yeah, I, I think 100 would be hawkish, wouldn't it? I think it would have to, hard to see that as dovish. I'm being a contrarian here. I think there is a risk. I think it's low. I think it's a 20% risk. But it's not a zero probability risk. So you've said 75 and hawkish. I'm going 100. I like it. I like it. We make a market, you and me. We're about to find out. (laughs) This is Bloomberg. (laughs) 